The most read and shared article in the New York Times from 2021 was written by psychologist Adam Grant. And in the article, he described the psychological concept and diagnosis of languishing. Languishing, the gray place between flourishing and depression. Any of you read this article? Ring a bell? Some of you? Great. Adam Grant's trying to name something that he, he experienced in his own relationships that many of us were going through during the pandemic. It wasn't, it wasn't clinical depression. It wasn't this thing that we, you know, we're, we're dealing with in that way. And it wasn't thriving. It wasn't flourishing. It was this in-between place. And Adam Grant writes of languishing. He says, it wasn't burnout. We still had energy. It wasn't depression. We didn't feel hopeless. We just felt somewhat joyless and aimless. It turns out that there's a name for that. Languishing. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life as though through a foggy windshield. Any of you had the experience where maybe you have some physical condition or something like languishing, and somebody puts a name to it, and you're like, even if it doesn't make it immediately better, it just feels there's like almost a brief glimpse of healing. You're like, finally, somebody has a way of describing what I'm experiencing. And for many people, the reason this was so widely shared is because it names something that they were experiencing. And so Adam Grant talks about the psychological diagnosis of languishing. And then he offers the antidote. What is the response? What do we do about it? Well, he says, what do we do about it? A concept called flow maybe an antidote to languishing. Flow is that elusive state of absorption in a meaningful challenge or a momentary bond where your sense of time, place, and self melts away. During the early days of the pandemic, the best predictor of well-being was an optimism or mindfulness. It was flow. People who became more immersed in their projects managed to avoid languishing and manage their, or maintain their pre-pandemic happiness. Now, this, this is a great response, right? What do we do when we're stuck? Well, as humans, we are pre-programmed. We want progress. We want to see movement. And the, the difficulty for many of us during the, the, the really kind of dark days of the pandemic was this absence of progress, was this absence of movement. And Adam Grant says, look, the, the antidotes are clear. Attention, being present in the moment, challenge, something that, that, that requires you to take on. And he would describe, he would just play like words with friends. That was his challenge for the day. But it was often um, for him, it was this way of engaging his brain. These are great responses when we feel stuck because we thrive off of progress. But notice what he says. He says, the antidote is to take on a project, to take on a challenge. But I think the question for us as the people of God then becomes, which project? Which challenge do we take on? Because another way that the pandemic threw many of us into languishing is that it prevented us from pursuing much of what our culture, specifically as as Americans in this moment, as our culture has promised that we could pursue. What do we do when the scripture or the script of culture fails us? Now, our culture promises us at some level that we can uh, find deep meaning in our job, that we can maybe make a lot of money, that we can travel the world, that the world will be personalized to your wants and desires, that everything will be tailored, or that you can order it to your door. Great experiences of travel and times with friends, and you can put it on Instagram or TikTok, because that's now been mentioned in the sermon at Ecclesia. 
And through all of that, through all of this, we make meaning. Again, that is the script of Project Self. This is a concept I introduced last week. Project Self is sort of the default operating system of our culture. And I'll put up that slide again just to kind of remind you. Not all of this is bad. But all of it focuses on what we can accomplish on our own. And a lot of it focuses on what our culture promises us. And so Project Self says, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a life. It requires a ton of energy and giftedness and intuition. But at the end of the day, it's about what we can make of ourselves. David Benner says, the prayer that comes most naturally for all of us is my name be hallowed, my kingdom come, my will be done. This is a prayer of independence and willfulness. It is the liturgy of the kingdom of self. But but friends, if we look at that project self, you can put that back up there again. Something about us knows intuitively that this will not satisfy Like, especially if you've been in church, you sort of know the script. It's like, you try to build your life on all these things. Guess what? All of it's sinking sand. Build your life on Jesus. Like, you've heard that before, right? So you know this, but yet still, like, intuitively, subtly, these are the things that we pursue. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, if we're having the experience of languishing in our walk with Jesus, why do we think that is? What do we think may be driving that? Maybe we're trying to respond with a different project than God has for us, maybe. Maybe we don't know what to do with all that energy. That, that is the real like, engine behind Project Self. Like, it requires a lot. Like, people accomplish greatly. And I think often the message that's received in the church is, it has several different facets. And I want to look at a couple of those. These are myths that we often intuit from the story that the church is telling, especially as it results in like our languishing, maybe our way out of languishing. Okay, a couple myths here. First of all, the myth is told that we can follow the cultural script and just add on the church stuff. So the way out of languishing is you sort of put like a holy stamp on the stuff that you're going to do anyway. You add a couple Bible studies, prayer meetings, worship nights, whatever it may be, small groups, communities, do all the stuff you're going to do anyway. Add the church stuff on. Right? Fill your life with more. The calendar gets filled up. And I think we try to do this. We try to hold these two things together. Instead of integrating our life under the rule and the reign of Jesus, we still have these compartments. This is my, this is my project self thing that I'm doing over here. And this is my churchy Jesus stuff over here. The next myth that we sort of intuit is that nothing that's not done explicitly for God has any real value. I really focused on this a couple of weeks ago in our teaching on Genesis 1 and 2. What is the mission that God has called us to? What does it mean to bear the image of God? And what are all the different layers and facets and expressions of that? But oftentimes, when we think about the mission of God, we have these very narrow categories for what that could possibly entail. And if you, especially if you grew up in church, you maybe bring a lot of baggage as to what is actual mission work and what is everything else. And the story that the Bible is telling is trying to get us to hold those things together. And the last myth, and it's the one I really want to focus in on today, it's that it's the ambition itself that's the problem. 
Again, project self, building a life for yourself requires a magic amount of energy. There's something to be regarded and almost revered about that. And I think sometimes when we come into the church, we think that that is the thing that we have to squelch. That is the thing that we have to put away. But what if, friends, what if God is inviting you to take all that energy that could build such an amazing life for yourself and to put it instead of building a project around yourself to building his kingdom, to put it into what God has designed you to do, not only for your own flourishing to get out of languishing, but for the flourishing of the world. James K.S. Smith says, if you walk around the phenomenon of ambition, you'll start to note a couple of features. First, the opposite of ambition is not humility. It is sloth, passivity, timidity, and complacency. We sometimes like to comfort ourselves by imagining that the ambitious are prideful and arrogant so that those of us who never risk, never aspire, never launch out into the deep get to wear the moralizing mantle of humility. But this imagining is often just thin cover for a lack of courage, even laziness. Playing it safe isn't humble. Ouch. The fulcrum, the place that all of this pivots, becomes in asking ourselves the question, how do we cultivate the right kind of ambition? How do we cultivate a heart that takes all this God-given energy and if it's God-given, might be, might be good. And say, I want to direct my life around this one thing and trust that everything else will be added onto it. Uh, my friend John Tyson calls this a holy ambition. And as I've mentioned him before, he has some great names for these terms. And I don't always remember what he said about them. So we're going to use his definition, or we're going to use his labels and apply some of our own definitions. But how do we cultivate an ambition that's not built for kingdom self, for project self, but for the kingdom of God. We want to look at the book of Nehemiah today. It gives us a a framework for cultivating a holy ambition that meets our great need for project, for challenge, that offers us the kind of life that moves out of languishing, that offers us a life that partners with God, that will not uh, leave us languishing, but will move us towards flourishing. So if you have a Bible, you can grab it, turn towards Nehemiah. If you have a phone, you can act like you're looking in the Bible and you can look at something else. But those sitting behind you will know and they will judge you. The words of Nehemiah, beginning in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Son of Hakaleah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah and I asked them about the Jews that survived those who had escaped the captivity and about Jerusalem. They replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Okay, I'm going to tell you something that is so vital to your life with Jesus. It is a historical date. Are you ready? 587 BC. Everybody say it, 587 BC. So much of the Bible centers around this day in time. In 587 BC, the Babylonian armies march upon Jerusalem. They lay waste to the city, the city where David had established the the throne of God, the city where Solomon built the temple. They march upon the city and they destroy it. 
So when you read books like Jeremiah, who's talking about all these bad things that are going to happen, what he's talking about is what happens in 587 BC. And I don't know about you, but I had a lot of trouble reading the Bible before I knew some of the history around the Bible, before I had an opportunity to study. And so maybe this will illuminate something as you're reading. You're like, oh, this isn't just like God just constantly spinning his wheels about how terrible people are. He's trying to warn them from a very real disaster that is coming their way. And we stand in this uh, text in Nehemiah on the other side of 587 BC. Nehemiah has been, has, is a product of the generations that were attacked by the Babylonians. The Babylonians attacked Jerusalem. They carted off many of the citizens there that they didn't kill. They took some of the best and the brightest. If you read the book of Daniel, this is how Daniel ends up in the king's court. Daniel is a Jew, but has been transported And eventually the Babylonians fall to the Persians. The Persians become sort of the great empire of the day. And this is where we find Nehemiah. He's in a Persian court. And he's asking about the state of Jerusalem, several years removed from 587 BC. And he hears how the walls are in ruin. Look at his response in verse 4. He says, When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The first thing that we see in Nehemiah's response is disillusioning experience. And we've all had in one way or another, the world is not as it should be. We see and it breaks our heart. And in a world such as ours, we have to be even more discerning because we can see so much more than we're able to respond to. Have any of you ever had this experience? Maybe you're scrolling social media And you just keep seeing like post after post, story after story of how terrible the world is and like how this thing's going on in this corner of the world and how this, this is coming, this, you know, economic disaster is impending or this climate disaster is impending. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I I read all stuff. I start to get a little overwhelmed. Start to feel, I'm like, oh gosh. And the internet for us gives us a small sliver of the omniscience of God. We can see a lot but without any of the slightest measure of the omnipotence of God. The difference between us and God is that God sees and he can respond. He can move. We just see and we're overwhelmed. It's kind of like when Adam and Eve take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are aware of their condition, but they are completely powerless to do anything about it. And so they try to cover themselves with figs and leaves. But Nehemiah is told very specific information about his homeland. His brother comes and delivers this message about what's going on in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah responds to the news about Jerusalem and its walls by sitting down to pray, by fasting and mourning. And he also confesses, if you read the rest of uh, verses 5 and 6, it says, Nehemiah says, I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive. And your ears open to, the, to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you, day and night, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Nehemiah brings this very real heartache that he experiences right to God. And he's several hundred miles away from Jerusalem. He's not able to be there present to fix the problem, but he brings what he sees to God. Holy ambition, friends, is when our heartaches begin to come into focus in the lens of God's kingdom. 
in our life with God. We feel a special connection, a deep calling for a specific need in the world. As Princeton graduate and Lawrenceville School graduate Frederick Biegner said, your calling to the world is where your deep hunger, your, your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger collide and meet. Nehemiah orients the news that he receives within the story of God. Outside of that story, there is only despair, but within that story, there is possibility. And as we'll see, in the case of Nehemiah, there is destiny. In the furnace of Nehemiah's life with God, holy ambition begins to be born. Look at what it says in the last verse of chapter 1, verse 11. O Lord, let your, attentive, or let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At the time, I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah turns his prayers of lament and confession into prayers of boldness and action. He starts to say, all right, maybe there's something I can do about this. And he starts to think this way because of that last line of chapter one, I was cupbearer to the king. You see, as Nehemiah hears the news about the state of Jerusalem, he starts to realize that he has been placed in a particularly unique position to maybe be able to impact the situation. It says that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. His job, which is an awesome job if you can get it, was to taste the king's wine. Sounds like a great job. However, there's one caveat. If somebody tries to poison the king, guess who gets poisoned? Nehemiah is like a glorified canary in a coal mine. So his job was to make sure that nobody was trying to kill the king. And so he would taste the, the king's wine and, you know, if he didn't die and croak over, he would hand it to the king. But Nehemiah, because of his position in the king, in, in the court of the Persian king, has a unique position in life to be able to impact the situation. He starts to frame his reality he starts to frame the situation that he has in life in regards of his circumstances. He starts to say, maybe these two things are not separate things. Maybe they fit together. Nehemiah realizes that although he is far away, he's uniquely positioned to be an agent of change. And holy ambition, friends, is where God's providence, his ordering of our steps before we are aware of it, our limits Nehemiah's stuck several hundred miles away from Jerusalem. Our longing to see the world made whole and our prayers all begin to converge. Nehemiah prays to God for favor. And this is the difference between an ambition that is built upon building God's kingdom and an ambition that's bent upon project self. Holy ambition, friends, requires that God shows up. And if he doesn't show up, then we will fail. Holy ambition is different from Project Self. Even though Project Self requires so much energy, so much giftedness, so much creativity, it's ultimately about what you can do. Your intelligence, your skill in relating to people. And God says, this is not about you, but it's about me and about what I'm wanting to do in the world. Nehemiah 2 goes on. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was served him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? 
This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves, lies waste, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This really is the moment of truth. Nehemiah has been holding this vision somewhere in the neighborhood of about four to five months, given the timeline that Nehemiah gives us. He's been holding these prayers, this grief, this sense of responsibility, and he's trying to say, God, if there's something I can do about it, let me know. And then, as it so happens, God allows the king to sort of notice Nehemiah. And it says that Nehemiah had never been sad in the king's presence. I used to work at this corporate restaurant, and, you know, they just had a lot of expectations for the way we would present ourselves. And it was always like very clean apron, tie done really well, iron shirt, and a happy disposition. And every time you were walking through the restaurant, and if somebody asked where the bathroom was, you couldn't just point the bathroom out. You had to walk them over there as if somebody who wants to go to the bathroom wants to be accompanied by a food server. But it was all like, we, wanted, we want happy people in here. And uh, if you have a bit of a cloudy disposition, sometimes this was like, okay, I've got to really pump myself up for this. But if you read Daniel 1, this was a bit of the expectation for those attendants in the king's court, that they would present themselves shining faces, smiling teeth, you know, very well put together. And in this moment, Nehemiah is sad and the king notices. And Nehemiah's response to the king noticing, it says, I was very afraid. Because the king can say, you know, Nehemiah, he's kind of a drag. You know what the king can do? Just be like, yeah, send him to the dungeon. I can get a new cup. I can get a new can uh, canary for my coal mine, for my wine tasting. Or just kill him. Like, the king can do what he wants. This is, you know, a long time ago. And so it says that Nehemiah is very afraid. And then he unveils the reasons why he is sad. He says to the king, Jerusalem is in ruins. Then the king asked Nehemiah, what do you request? That's a dangerous question. Jesus asks a man born who can't walk. And Jesus asks him the question, do you want to be made well? And you'd be like, well, of course he wants to be made well. But God doesn't short circuit that process. What do you want? What are you after? Nehemiah's pulse is racing. If this goes wrong, again, Nehemiah might go to jail, he might be killed, but then, too, his heart is broken for Jerusalem. Jerusalem will persist in the state that it's in. And as it goes, Artaxerxes grants Nehemiah's request. It says in verse 8, So the king granted me what I asked, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Okay, we're familiar. Frameworks are not always a neat description of how life goes. I know many of you have been, uh, you know, you've been a part of building God's kingdom for a while. You know it's not always like, okay, I saw, I prayed, God changed everything in a short, short amount of time, okay? But these frameworks can help us as we start to pursue what it means to cultivate a holy ambition, right? Frameworks are not the end-all, be-all, but they are so helpful as we start to investigate to take inventory of our heart. And so I want to use this tight little section in Nehemiah. If you read the rest of Nehemiah, you'll find that he finds so much opposition, so much resistance to the project that he's trying to take on, you'll be comforted when you have hard days too. Nehemiah has plenty coming up. But in this tight sequence, Nehemiah moves from a broken heart to fasting and praying and confessing to petitioning God and saying, God, I need you to move to response. And so... 
Yeah, at Ecclesia, we pray that it will all go that well for us, that nicely. But I want to give you a framework. How do we begin to cultivate a holy ambition? I'm going to give you just four things here. I'm going to put them all up at once. First, hear the cries of the world. When God comes to Moses, he says, I am the Lord God who has heard the cries of my people suffering and anguish. Project Self tells us to retreat from the world. Our default response when so much is hurting and so much is is painful and broken is to retreat into our phones, those dopamine hits that just keep coming, just keep offering something else. I don't want to deal with this. This is too hard. Into Netflix to move away, to turn our back. The first thing we have to do is what Nehemiah does. He sees reality. He sees what's going on in the world. Now, friends, these, these cries can be cries for justice. They can be cries for forgiveness. They can be cries for order, for beauty, for companionship, for compassion. Again, as we saw in that teaching in Genesis 1 and 2, the mission of God is so much bigger than we let it be, but there are cries that are echoing out from the world. And do we close our ears? Notice Nehemiah keeps saying, Lord, you are the one who hears. Open your ear to me. This is who God is, and this is who we're called to be. So we hear the cries. We deal with reality. Second, don't be overwhelmed, but pray and confess. Nehemiah does this really interesting thing, especially as he's somebody who's in the court of the Persian king far removed from Jerusalem. He's a a couple generations removed from the generation that was taken out of Jerusalem. Nehemiah doesn't distance himself from confessing the sins of the people that have gone before him. He just confesses the sins of his people, and says, we have gone astray. Nehemiah has clearly encountered Deuteronomy at different points in his life. And he's saying, you know, the Lord promised that if we were to keep his covenant, then we would be blessed. And if we don't, we will be be condemned, we will be judged. And so Nehemiah is responding, he's praying. And then he moves to this, after confessing to this sense of praying that God might act, that God might move, he starts to acknowledge that he needs God. For this thing to be possible, for something to change, he needs God to move and to act. The third thing is he begins to, again, this is another phrase from my good friend John, sovereign deposits. He begins to take inventory of his life, his situation. You know, there's an incredible thing that happens with God. As God has been a part of your story far, far before you were ever, ever aware of it. I think of it like this, you know, for Courtney and I, we, we try to love our kids so well. We try to invest in them. All of that are these little incremental uh, movements of just showing them God's heart, showing them our heart for them. But there's so many things, especially when they're young, they will never, ever remember. Right? Like so many things as a parent that you do, they'll never know, but they're all forming them. They're all depositing something into them. That will be, you know, part of the person that they become. And in such a, a way, exponentially beyond that, God has been doing that in your life. It doesn't mean that God is responsible for everything that's ever happened to you. But God has never left you, never forsaken you. And through that general truth that God is always with you, there are specific things that make you tick. There are specific experiences you have had. I've moved like 25 times. That makes me who I am. It's a part of my formation. It's a part of my calling in the world. What it means, I still don't know, but I'm here. 
the reality is you have experiences in your life. You have a makeup, a constitution in your life that is unique. And it is a gift to the world. As Nehemiah had, he had a position in the court of the king. And he didn't say, oh, that's just, you know, somehow separate from all the other stuff God's calling me to do. He's like, this is clearly something to be leveraged, to be used on behalf of the kingdom of God. And it's not always just about our positional authority. Again, it's about our makeup. It's about the gifts that we have. It's about the way that we see the world. For many of you, you're artists. And I found over and over again that artists call me to look at the kingdom of God and what Jesus has done from a different vantage point that illuminates, that opens and so review, inventory the sovereign deposits. What has God, what, how has he been a part of your story long before? And, and just a good way to do this, friends, is to do a peaks and valleys exercise. Just like write, like over the last five years, over the last 10 years, what are some of the most formative, meaningful moments of your life? And what are some of the lowest points of your life? And again, how can you find God within the story? The last and cultivating a holy ambition is like, Jesus did this really mean thing. He said, listen, you're going to have to live by faith, not by sight. <laughs> Which just means sometimes you're not really sure. And you're just like, I think I'm going to do this. And sometimes stuff works really well. And other times you're like, oh, I'm going to take two steps back. And then maybe we'll go this way. But involving yourself, as Nehemiah does, he puts his head on the line and he says, oh, king, uh, I would like for you to, uh, to do these things for me. And if you don't, then you'll probably just expel me from your court or get rid of me altogether. Investing in the challenge that you see before you and saying, I'm going to take a step, the first step that I can conceive as obedience. And when individuals and groups begin to develop a holy ambition, movements are unleashed, lives are healed, Throughout church history, men and women who have cultivated collectively and individually a holy ambition have changed whole cities and nations. Look at what James K. Smith says. When we arrive at this sense of holy ambition, as, as opposed to building Project Self, when we rest in God's love and knowing that we are loved by God, know that we've been called to be partners with him. Look at what he says. He says, resting in the love of God doesn't squelch ambition. It fuels it with a different fire. I don't have to strive to get God to love me. Rather, because God loves me unconditionally, I'm free to take risks and launch out into the deep. I'm released to aspire to use my gifts in gratitude, caught up in God's mission for the sake of the world. When you've been found, you're free to fail. They talk about good parenting is allowing your kids to take risks. And God is the best father. And he's trying to say to us, he's like, I've given you the knowledge of the good news, the saving news of Jesus Christ. And now I just want you to share that. And there's so many beautiful and creative ways for you to do that. Join with me. Move out of your comfort into a life that is settled in the love of God, but that also needs God, that needs him to show up. And friends, if we collectively will take hold of this, if this will be our guiding fire and ambition, I promise you, we are going to see things that surprise us. Just from the last two centuries, Frederick Douglass, though he had found his own freedom, he was emancipated from slavery, was not simply content with his own personal freedom. He could have gone to a farm in upstate New York, turned his back on the world and just said, I'm just so glad to not be in that situation anymore. But he didn't do that. He labored throughout his life in the struggle for freedom and the proper dignity for black enslaved people. Ida B. Wells was born into slavery. 
And after uh, several years and receiving her freedom, she told the stories of the horrors of lynching and confronted white people for their participation in these evils at great cost to herself. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was outside of Germany when all was unfolding in Nazi Germany during World War II. He could have not gone back. He was in Switzerland. He was in New York City. He could have stayed there safely. But instead, he knew he had to help the church resist what Hitler had begun to twist into the life of the very church itself. And he went back and he gave his life to serve King Jesus. Martin Luther King Jr. said himself, he says, like anybody, I would like to have a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. Friends, it's easy for us to see like these big momentous lives and just say, oh, that's, that's them. That's, you know, that's, that's Martin Luther King. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That's Frederick Douglass. That's Ida B. Wells. But, but the reality is, the democracy of the kingdom of God is, is Jesus saying to you, you have a calling that is as weighty and significant as they do. These callings have been worked out in all these kinds of ways. They've been worked out in these big, world-changing ways that we look here, and they've been worked out by people that have been amazing fathers and mothers to their kids, that have seen school kids in their neighborhood playing and knowing that they need a place to go for safety, that have seen people that need food, security, that know that they need something that they can count on when it comes to the the groceries on their shelves and just say, we're going to take care of you. Friends, the, the, the stories of the saints work out in endlessly beautiful and myriad ways. We have to begin to develop a holy ambition. Whose kingdom will we serve? Will we languish in pursuit of project self? Because again, even if we respond to our sense of disorientation with a project, and we take on project self, it will not satisfy, it will not sustain us? Or will we flourish by joining Jesus' world-changing movement? Not my will, but your will be done. I'm going to invite Alfredo to come forward. As we move to a time of response, as we move to the table. And as we do that, this is a time of encounter. Again, we believe that God is present, that he's not just present in the words that we read in the Bible. He's not just present in some sort of distant ways we read about in places like Acts 2 and the Spirit, like that, that Jesus poured out his Spirit. And that because of that, he promised that wherever we gather, that he would be present with us, that he truly will never leave us or forsake us, not to the end of the age. And so he's here today, and he's wanting to fan the flames of ambition. Not self-ambition, but you have a calling on your life. A calling to see that everything that you do can be done to the glory of God. A calling to put away the shame that often leaves us in spinning our wills and say, let Jesus say to you, I have healed that. That there is nothing you need to do to atone for your past. There is nothing you need to do to somehow make it right. I've already done that because that was Jesus' ambition. The story that the Bible is telling is about God's mission first. And God's mission to us is to pursue us at all costs, to stop at nothing to be God with us. He has done that on the cross, and he promises his presence to heal, to sustain, to move us. So as we come together, we gather around this table to remember that mission starts with encounter. And encountering God means being healed being restored, being called as an ambassador and an agent in his mission of reconciliation and peace to the world. On the night Jesus was arrested, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you.
And he took a cup and he blessed it. He said, this is my blood poured out for your sins. And then he gave it to his friends. And in sharing those elements with his friends, that bread and that wine, he was doing two things at once. He was saying, you are made clean because of the word I've spoken over you. Because of my work on the cross, because of my mission. And now I involve you as you partake of this. You are now immersed in this project. This is now the center of your life, carrying forth this kingdom. So we come and we receive. And as we receive, we are givers. And pray as we come to this table. I'm going to invite our communion service forward. Let us pray. Jesus, Lord, in these moments of encounter, God, we, we trust, we turn the, the room over to you, God, in a distinct way. So, Lord Jesus, would you meet us here? God, not to, to fan some aflame of, of hype or self-indulgence, God, but to fan the flames of your burning passion for the world. God, to make us come alive because we are walking with you, God, because we've received your grace and because we live as ambassadors, as those who give out grace freely and abundantly as you do. And so God, I pray for those who need to be comforted here, Lord who need to just see that your mission is to them, God, would you meet them? I pray for those who need to be convicted, God, that there is more, Lord. Would you do your patient, slow work of pulling us deeper? God, for those of us who need to be challenged and confronted, Lord, where we're letting sin and idolatry get in the way of what you want to do in us and through us, Lord Jesus. Lord, have your way. God, we receive these elements, bread and blood marking your, your forgiveness poured out for us. And we live in light of heaven now. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the beauty of your son. We pray all these things in your name, your strong and powerful name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, you can come and receive from the table. Malvika will be in the middle to let you go. If you're sitting on this side, you can make your way around the aisle.